This is week number 37, reading through the New Testament this week, Colossians chapter 3 uh, through uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is for the week of September 11th through September 17th. This is Pastor Spencer. Thank you for joining us. Um, We are uh, walking through the New Testament, reading through the New Testament um, this year, and uh, we are now heading, getting closer into fall here. Um, as we're, we're here in the middle of September, reading our Bibles in the middle of Paul's uh, letters, this portion of the, the New Testament that we're in. And so last week we began the book of Colossians. Um, you might remember that that is uh, one of the most, uh, maybe the most uh, Christocentric, the most Christ-centered letter in the whole of the New Testament. It's very, very focused upon the sufficiency of what we have in Jesus Christ. It was uh, written by Paul from his uh, Roman imprisonment. But now this week we're going to turn our attention also uh, beginning to these uh, Thessalonian letters. Now, just because of the way the our New Testaments are arranged, um, it's important to be reminded that actually Thessalonians, the first and second letters uh, to the church in Thessalonica, were actually written before the book of Colossians. So even though they come after they actually were written uh, before. So whereas the book of Colossians was written around the year AD 60, First uh, Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians were written about 10 years earlier, around uh, the year 50. And Paul wrote this letter and uh, Second Corinthians from Corinth. Um, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica in Macedonia, and he's, he's doing this um, because the church there, the Thessalonians, these believers in Jesus Christ, are being persecuted Um, And there apparently is confusion, as we'll see in in this letter, uh, regarding the end of time. They're they're concerned about this. They don't know how to navigate um, uh, the the end of time and and how we should live as believers in this in-between period between Christ's first and second comings. So that's what Paul is doing. He's writing to this church to encourage them, um, to talk about the end times to them, to... uh, help them in their everyday lives as believers and 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 to uh, to help them along the way in this way. So uh, it's interesting, though, that if there's one uh, New Testament uh, introduction book that says the Thessalonian letters are probably among the more neglected of Paul's letters. So uh, whenever you think about Paul's writings, you probably will, first of all, think about books like Romans or Galatians. Um, maybe even Colossians or Ephesians or Philippians, uh, but the Thessalonian letters, and, and also you might think about the books uh, to Timothy or to Titus, um, but the letters to the Thessalonians are more neglected. Not that they're any less inspired, of course, but sometimes we forget about them, and we would do well to pay attention to them and to read them and to see what God has to say to us in these uh, letters, in this portion of his word, because they're, they're among the earliest letters we have written from Paul, and they also have much to teach us about uh, what, how we're to live in this in-between period, thinking about what we have to look forward to with the resurrection and Christ's second coming, and how we're to live in the in-between 
uh, times now. So we would do well to listen and to read these letters, um, to be encouraged, um, and to know also, it's, it's helpful also to note that because they were earlier letters written by Paul, we have a helpful insight into um, the most basic teaching, you know, so it's, it's another indication that the message hadn't really changed. The message did not change. The gospel did not change. What Paul was saying um, in AD 50, he was saying in AD 60, um, this gospel did not change. The message didn't get adjusted. So we're going to read Colossians 3 this week, go through 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. So what I want to do today is, first of all, read a, uh, some stuff from a Spurgeon sermon on Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, because Paul has this powerful section in chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Um, And then he later on will write uh, this in verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's in this verse 11 that Spurgeon is going to preach this singular phrase, Christ is all. And that really is a helpful summary uh, in some ways of the whole book of Colossians. Paul is saying this, you do not need anything else because you have been blessed fully perfectly, completely with everything in Jesus Christ, the person of the incarnate Lord. You have been given everything as you received him. So now walk in him. That is what Paul is encouraging these Colossians because they thought they have been following some kind of teaching that, that somehow, you know, it's good to begin with Jesus, but if you really want to go deeper, if you really want to be uh, more radical and more um, uh, sincere or get some uh, deeper experience of Christianity, then you need to do uh, these things. You need to eat these certain things or follow these certain rules or do these certain things. And Paul says this, that, that these things might have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They cannot help you. But Jesus Christ can and has. So turn to Christ. Christ is all for Paul. And let's, so let's listen to Spurgeon here and see what he has to say to us here um, to help us think about what we're reading here in Colossians, this whole a big idea. And this hopefully will help us get a big idea of what Paul is generally trying to say in this book of Colossians about the supremacy, the importance, the, the grandeur, and the sufficiency of everything that we have in Jesus Christ. So this is Spurgeon's sermon, Christ is All, from Colossians uh, 3, uh, 11. He says this, My text is so very short that you cannot forget it. And I am quite certain, if you are Christians at all, you will be sure to agree with it. What a multitude of religions there is in this poor, wicked world of ours. Men have taken it into their heads to invent various systems of religion. And if you look around the world, you will see scores of different sects. But it is a great fact that while there is a multitude of false religions, there is but one that is true. 
While there are many falsehoods, there can be but one truth. Real religion is therefore one. There is but one gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing it is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, should be born of humble parents and live as a poor man in this world for the purpose of our salvation. He lived a life of suffering and trial, and at length, through the malignity of his enemies, was crucified on Calvary as an outcast of society. Now, said they, there is an end of his religion. Now it will be such a contemptible thing that nobody will ever call himself a Christian. It will be discreditable to have anything to do with the name of the man Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. But it is a wonderful fact that this religion, this religion has not only lived, but is at this hour as strong as ever. Yes, the religion he founded still exists and is still powerful and constantly extending. While other religions have sunk into the darkness of the past and the idols have been cast to the moles and to the bats, the name of Jesus is still mighty and it shall continue to be a blessed power so long as the universe shall endure. The religion of Jesus is the religion of God. Hence, notwithstanding all the obliquy and persecution which it has come to encounter, it still exists and still flourishes. It is this religion which I shall attempt to preach to you, the one gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the text embraces it all in the most comprehensive manner. Christ is all. I shall use it first as a test to try you, and afterwards as a motive to encourage you. I want first to sift you to see how many of you are the people of God and how many are not. I shall make my text a great sieve and put you in it to see which is wheat and which is chaff. We must consider this passage in two or three senses in order first to use it as first a test to try you. Christ must be all as your great master and teacher. There are some who set up a certain man as their authority. They regard him as their master. They look up to him as their teacher and whatever he says is right. It is the truth and not to be disputed. Or perhaps they have taken a certain book other than the Bible and say, we will judge all things by this book. And if the preacher does not teach exactly the creed written in that book, he is set down as not sound in the faith. And this they do not hesitate to say at once, because he does not come up to the standard of their little book. We meet with many people in this world who make their creed, their one little narrow creed, everything. And they measure everything and everybody by that. But my friends, I must have you say that Christ is all, and not any man, however good or great, before I can allow that you are Christians. We have not to follow men. Our faith stands not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. We are to follow no man, except so far as he follows Christ, who alone is our master. Be not deceived. Submit not yourselves to creeds, to books, or to men. Give yourselves to the study of God's word. Derive your creed and the doctrines of your faith from it alone, and then you will be able to say, Should all the forms that men devise assault my faith with treacherous art, I'd call them vanity and lies and bind the gospel to my heart. Let Christ be your only master and say, in the words of our text, Christ is all. Now, can you say this, or are you boasting, The Baptists are all, the Wesleyans are all, the Church of England is all. As the Lord lives, if you are saying that, you do not know his truth, because you are not testifying that Christ is all, but simply uttering the shibboleth of your little party. I should like to see the word party blotted out from the vocabulary of the Christian church. I thank God that I have no sympathy whatever with that which is merely sectarian, and have grace given me to protest against it and to exclaim, let party names no more the Christian world or spread. Since Gentile and Jew and bond and free are one in Christ, their head. 
If Christ is all to you, you are Christians, and I, for one, am ready to give you the right hand of brotherhood. I do not mind what place of worship you attend or by what distinctive name you may call yourselves. We are brethren, and I think, therefore, that we should love one another. If, my friends, you cannot embrace all who love the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter to what denomination they may belong, and as belonging to the universal church, you have not hearts large enough to go to heaven. Because if such be your contracted views, you cannot possibly say, Christ is all. Next, Christ must be all as your principal object in life, your chief good. Your great aim must be to glorify Christ on the earth in the hope and expectation of enjoying him forever above. But as it regards some of you, Christ is not your all. You think more of your shop than you do of him. You are up early in the morning looking at your ledgers and all day long toiling at your business. Do not mistake me. I dislike lazy people who let the grass grow over their shoes, and God disapproves of them too. We want no lazy gospelers. The true Christian will say, I know that I am bound to be diligent in business, but I want to work for eternity as well as for time. I need something besides earthly riches. I want an inheritance not made with hands, a mansion not built by man, a possession in the skies. Are you making this world you all? Poor souls, if you are, the world and the fashion thereof are passing away. Your all will soon be gone. I fancy I see a rich man, one whose gold is his all. When he gets into the next world, looking for his gold and wondering where it is, and being at length compelled to exclaim in despair, Oh, my all is gone. But if you can say that Christ is your all, then your treasure will never be gone, for he will never leave you nor forsake you, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. You shall be happy and blessed, for you shall be crowned with glory and made to sit with Christ on his throne forever. I skip ahead here and uh, see here. Um, so he's talking about, is Christ your all? And then he eventually says this. Next, Christ will be all as the source of your joy. Some people seem to think that Christians are a very melancholy sort of folk, that they have no real happiness. I know something about religion, and I will not admit that I stand second to any in respect of being happy. So far as I know religion, I have found it to be a very happy thing. I would not change my blessed estate for all that earth calls good or great. I used to think that a religious man must never smile, but on the contrary, I find that religion will make a man's eyes bright and cover his face with smiles and impart comfort and consolation to his soul, even in the deepest of his earthly tribulations. In illustration of this, I might tell you the story of a poor man who lives in one of the courts in Holborn, who experiences great joy in religion, even in the midst of the deepest poverty. A Christian visitor, going up into the poor man's room at the top of the house, said, My friend, how long have you been in this place? I have not been downstairs nor walked across the room these twelve months. Have you anything to depend upon? Nothing, he replied, but recollecting himself, he added, I have a good father up in heaven and I depend upon him entirely, and he never lets me want. Some kind Christian friends are sure to call, and they never go away without leaving me something, and I get enough to live on and pay my rent, and I am very happy. I would not change places with anybody in the world, for I have Jesus Christ with me, and my heavenly Father will take me home by and by, and then I shall be as rich as any of them. Shall I not, sir? Sometimes I get very low, and Satan tells me that I am not a child of God, and that I had better give up all is, all is lost." But I tell him that he is a great coward to come and meddle with a poor creature like me. And I show him the blood, sir. And I tell him the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth from all sin. 
And when I show Satan the precious blood, sir, he leaves off tempting me and flees directly, for he cannot bear the sight of the Savior's blood. So he says here at the very end, Spurgeon does. Now then, let me ask you, could you go with me while I have been speaking? Can you now say that Christ is your only master, your chief good, your only joy? Oh, yes, I do love Jesus because he first loved me. Then welcome, brother. You are one with Jesus and we are one with each other. But if you cannot say it, how terrible it shall be with some of you when you shall find your gourds wither, the props whereupon you lean struck down at a blow, your false refuges swept away and deprived of all your feathers and finery. Your soul will appear before God in its true character. May it not be so with any of you, but may you be united to Christ by living faith, which works by love and purifies the heart. Spurgeon now moves on secondly to a motive to encourage you. A motive to encourage you. He says here, Christ is all. My beloved friends, and what is he all? Christ is all in the entire work of salvation. Let me just take you back to the period before this world was made. There was a time when this great world, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all which now exists throughout the whole of the vast universe lay in the mind of God, like unborn forests in an acorn cup. There was a time when the great creator lived alone, and yet he could foresee that he would make a world and that men would be born to people it. And in that vast eternity, a great scheme was devised whereby he might save a fallen race. Do you know who devised it? God planned it from first to last. Neither Gabriel nor any of the holy angels had anything to do with it. I question whether they were even told how God might be just and yet save the transgressors. God was all in the drawing up of the scheme and Christ was all in carrying it out. There was a dark and doleful night. Jesus was in the garden sweating great drops of blood which fell to the ground. Nobody then came to bear the load that had been laid upon him. An angel stood there to strengthen him, but not to bear the sentence. The cup was put into his hands, and Jesus said, Father, must I drink it? And his father replied, If thou dost not drink, sinners cannot be saved. And he took the cup and drained it to its very dregs. No man helped him. And when he hung upon that accursed tree of Calvary, when his precious hands were pierced, when from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down, there was nobody to help him. He was all in the work of salvation. And my friends, if any of you shall be saved, it must be by Christ alone. There must be no patchwork. Christ did it all and will not be helped in the matter. Christ will not allow you, as some say, to do what you can and leave him to make up the rest. What can you do that is not sinful? Christ has done all for us. The work of redemption is all finished. Christ planned it all and worked out all. And we therefore preach a full salvation through Jesus Christ. What could we poor mortals do towards saving ourselves? Our best works are but mean and worthless to that great end. I am sure I could not do it. My preaching, I am ashamed of that, and there are a thousand faults in my prayers. God wants nothing of us by way of making up Christ's work. But he cancels all the sins and blots out all the transgressions of everyone who trusts in his son's death. If I have found Christ, I have found all. I have not strong faith, say you. Never mind, Christ is all. I do not feel my sins sufficiently, but Christ is all. Many people think they must feel a load of repentance before they may hope Christ will receive them. I know every child of God will repent, but we are not all brought to the cross by the terrors of the law. 
It is not your feelings, my friends, that will save you, but Christ only. Christ standing in your stead. Christ being your substitute. If feeling your need of his grace to pardon you and his righteousness to justify you before God, you can but look to Christ. Though you have nothing good about you, you will have done all that is necessary to carry you to heaven because it is not your act that can save you, but the act of Christ alone. A little while ago, I had a conversation with an Irishman who had been to hear me preach. He had come to ask me, he said, the way of salvation. What troubles me, he said, is this. God says that he will condemn the sinner and punish him. Then how can God forgive? Because he must punish if he would keep his word. I placed before him the scriptural view of the atonement in the substitution of Christ for the sinner. And the poor man was astonished and delighted beyond measure, never having understood the beauty and simplicity of the gospel way of salvation before. Is it really so, said he? It is in the Bible, I replied. Then the Bible must be true, said he, for nobody but God could have thought it. If Jesus Christ is our surety, friends, we are safe from the demands of the law. If Christ is our substitute, we shall not suffer the penalty due to sin, for God will never punish the same sin twice. If I have nothing but Christ, I do not want anything else, for Christ is all. If Christ is your all, you will not want anything to help you, either in living or in dying. Now, for two thoughts before I close. One, if a man has Christ, then what does he want else? If a man has Christ, he has everything. If I want perfection and I have Christ, I have absolute perfection in him. If I want righteousness, I shall find in him my beauty and my glorious dress. I want pardon, and if I have Christ, I am pardoned. I want heaven, and if I have Christ, I have the prince of heaven, and shall be there by and by to live with Christ and to dwell in his blessed embrace forever. If you have Christ, you have all. Do not be desponding. Do not give ear to the whisperings of Satan that you are not the children of God. For if you have Christ, you are his people, and other things will come by and by. Christ makes you complete in himself. As the apostle says, ye are complete in him. I think of poor Mary Magdalene. She would have nothing to bring of her own. She would remember that she had been a harlot. But when she comes to heaven's gates, she will say, I have Christ, and the command will go forth. Let her in, Gabriel. Let her in. Here comes a poor squalid wretch. What has he been doing? He has never learned to write. He can scarcely he scarcely went even to a ragged school, but he has Christ in his heart. Gabriel, let him in. Next comes a rich bad man with rings on his fingers and fine clothes upon his person, but the command is, shut the gates, Gabriel. He has no business here. Then comes a fine, flaming professor of the gospel, but he never knew Christ in his heart. Shut the gate, Gabriel. If a man has Christ, he has all for eternity, and if he has not Christ, he is poor and blind and naked and will be miserable forever. Will not you then, who are listening to me now, resolve in the strength of the Lord to seek him at once and make him your friend? No matter what may be your state or condition, you are invited to come to him. Ye blind, ye lame who are far from Christ, come to him and receive your sight and obtain your strength. He has made your all. You need bring nothing in your hand to come to him. Ah, oh, says one, I am not good enough yet. Beggars do not talk thus. They consider that the more needy they are, the more likely are they to obtain that for which they ask. The worse the dress, the better for begging. 
It is the same with respect to the gospel. And you are invited to come to Christ just as you are, naked and miserable, that he may clothe and comfort you. My last thought is this. How poor is that man who is destitute of Christ? If I were to say to some of you, some one of you that you are poor, you would reply, I am not poor. I have 250 pounds a year coming in, a decent house and an excellent situation. And yet, if you have not Christ, you are a poor man indeed. Look at that poor worldling with a load of 10,000 pounds upon his back, a quantity of stocks and annuities in one hand, policies and railway scrip in the other. But he is wretched with all his wealth, though he can hardly carry it. There is a poor beggar woman who says to him, Let me take a part of your burden. But the miserable man refuses all assistance and resolves to carry all his load himself. But by and by he comes to a great gulf, and instead of finding these riches help him, they hang around his neck like millstones and weigh him down. Yet there are some who would do anything for gold. If there be one man more miserable than another in hell, it must be the man who robbed his neighbors to feather his own nest. Such feathers will help the flight of the arrows which shall pierce his soul to all eternity. No matter what your wealth, if you have not Christ, you are miserably poor, but with Christ you are rich to all eternity. Methinks I see one of you ungodly ones in your last moments. Someone stands by your bedside and watches your face. The death sweat comes over you and the big drops stand on your brow. The strong man is bowed down and the mighty one falls and now the eye closes and the hand falls powerless. Life is fled. Ah, but the soul never dies. Up it flies to appear at God's bar. How will it appear there? Oh, the poor soul without Christ. It will be a naked soul. It will have no garments to cover it. It will be a perishing soul, no salvation for it. Mercy cannot be secured then. It will be in vain to pray then because the lamp will be put out in eternal darkness and the judge will say in tones that will pierce you to the quick, depart from me, ye cursed. May God give all of you grace to repent and to embrace the salvation which is revealed in the gospel. Every sin-sick soul may have Christ, but as for you who are Pharisees and trusting in yourselves that you are righteous, if you know nothing about sin, you can know nothing about Christ. The way to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is it to believe, you say? I have heard of a captain who had a little son, and this little boy was very fond of climbing aloft. One day he climbed to the masthead, and the father saw that if the boy attempted to return, he would be dashed to pieces. He therefore shouted to him not to look down, but to drop into the sea. The poor boy kept fast hold of the mast, but the father saw it was his only chance of safety, and he shouted once more, Boy, the next time the sea lurches, drop, or I will shoot you. The boy is gone. He drops into the sea and is saved. Had he not dropped, he must have perished. This is just your condition. So long as you cling to works and ceremonies, you are in the utmost peril. But when you give yourselves entirely to the mercy of Christ, you are safe. Try it, sinner. Try it, that is all. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, as Christ promised, and it shall never fail you. The invitation is to all who thirst. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come and take the water of life freely. I have heard that in the deserts where they can get only get water at long intervals, they send a man on a camel in search of it. 
When he sees a pool, he springs off his beast, and before he drinks, he himself drinks, he calls out, Come! And there is another man at a little distance, and he shouts, Come! And one further away still repeats the word, Come! Until the whole desert resounds with the cry, Come! And they come, rushing to the water to drink. Now I do not make the gospel invitation wider than the the declaration of the word of God. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever you are, and whatsoever you may have been, if you feel your need of Christ, come, and he will receive you and give you to drink of the water of life freely. Well, that's the end of that Spurgeon sermon there. Um, As usual, very rich in uh, gospel truth, gospel reminders. Um, I I really enjoy reading these Spurgeon sermons to you, and I hope you enjoy listening to them. um, Because I think it's that kind of preaching, that rich, saturated, Christ-centered, cross-focused preaching that is uh, to be our meat and potatoes, uh, so to speak, of the Christian life. Um, and perhaps, I don't know if you're like me, uh, as I go farther in my life, the free offer of the gospel, the fact of that that whosoever, that invitation, that availability of Jesus Christ to everyone is sweeter and sweeter. And I realize more and more that I need it more and more because we may be tempted to doubt our salvation or to doubt Christ's willingness to save us or any number of things, but that wonderful call to come and for everyone uh, is, is quite comforting to us as believers. So that's Colossians. I want to read one thing to you uh, about Thessalonians. Now we turn our attention to Thessalonians. And it's based here off of 1 Thessalonians uh, verses 9 and 10, uh, which says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so I want to read here as we go through First and Second Thessalonians. I want to return back to that guy uh, I've mentioned him before, Horatius Bonar, who was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the 1800s. Wrote some uh, relatively uh, well-known hymns um, that are rich, and he was a rich gospel preacher. And this is uh, from his uh, work. I forget what the title of the the books is. We've got them up in the library. But he's got a thing here called The Turning to God and the Waiting for Christ. He writes this. Paul's gospel, verse 5, had found its way into Thessalonica. He was himself the preacher. It had come in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And from Thessalonica, he sounded out the word of the Lord, not only through Greece, but over the world. The spiritual work was a very decided one. There was no semi-Christianity, no half-and-half discipleship, no languid and lifeless and second-rate religion. The results of the gospel were beyond all mistake, and the Christian life was bold and without compromise. In this church, we have a bright specimen of primitive Christianity and discipleship. The line between the believer and the unbeliever was drawn deep and sharp. These Christians were out and out what they professed to be. The world might hate and malign them, but it could not misunderstand them. 
They were, beyond all doubt, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two main features given us of these Thessalonian conversions, the turning and the waiting. First of all, the turning. Conversion here is exhibited in its fullest and largest aspect. For in the case of these Gentiles, everything had to become new. Creed, conduct, worship, religion. Not a particle of their former selves remained. Old things passed away. All things became new. They turned. Yes, they turned and no one could mistake their turning. To themselves as well as to all others, it was equally plain. They turned and yet it was God who turned them. They turned and yet there was an invisible and supernatural power at work within them, working in them both to will and to do. God's entreaty to them as to all was, Turn ye, turn ye. They turned from idols. Idolatry was their chief characteristic. They had gods many, idols without number. These they cast aside. They forsook Jupiter and his altars, flung down their lairs and penates, turned their back on idolatrous temples, as temples not only of idols but of devils. For what agreement hath the temple of God with idols, and what concord is there between Christ and Belial? What sympathy between the theater and the sanctuary, between the Lord's table and the ballroom? They turned to serve the living and true God. They turned to God, setting their faces Godward. They turned to serve God, quitting all idolatrous service and dedicating themselves to the service of God, of him who alone is entitled to that name, the living God, in opposition to the dead and dumb idols, the true God, in opposition to their false and fabulous divinities. How total the change of service! What an elevation! What an expansion! What an ennobling! Their old religion, how vile and material and earthly! Their new religion, how lofty, how spiritual, how heavenly. This is the true revolution, whether in a nation or a man. The reversal of our whole life, the transformation of our whole being, the renovation of heart, creed, principles, character, and aims. This divine revolution or reformation is the only one that can avail. The new creation, the new being, the new soul in life. But second of all, not only do they have the turning, but there's the waiting. It is not mere turning from our former selves, for it is not only for it not only alters our feelings as to the fast, but as to the as to the past, but as to the future also. A new future is given, as well as a new present. To these Thessalonian idolaters, the future was all a blank or filled up with gloom. Now, after their turning, it is filled with glory. The special object of that future is the Son of God Himself. Many things cluster around him, but he is himself its special brightness. He has gone into heaven, and there he is now, at the right hand of God. But he is not always to remain there. He is to come again, and it is this advent that fills up the future of the believing man. There are several expressions used in reference to it. First of all, loving it. 2 Timothy 4.8 In turning to the living and true God, we love the appearing of his Son. It appears to us so desirable, and the meeting between him and us when we shall see his face so blessed. Loving him and knowing his love to us, we love his appearing. Two, waiting for it. The word refers to passive expectation. Sitting still and abiding till the expected one arrives as the disciples tarried in Jerusalem till Pentecost. Patient waiting or endurance. Not indifference, but still simple waiting the happy, trans tranquil expectation of a believing, loving heart. Thirdly, looking for it. 
We are not, however, to be content with this passive expectation. We are not to sit quietly in the house till the knock comes on the door. We are to be looking out at the windows and along the road to see if the beloved one be not coming. Fourthly, watching for it. This rises above all the rest. It is more than loving or waiting or looking. It is that feeling, we call it nervous and eager, which arises from the uncertainty of the time. When we greatly love a person and long for a visit, but are quite uncertain as to when he may come, we watch. This was the special word of our Lord himself. He has commanded us to watch. Of him for whom we are to wait, the apostle proclaims three things. He is the Son of God. He was raised from the dead. He is the deliverer from the wrath to come. These are three special things on which our faith rests, and in believing which we are saved. And these are three special things on which our hope rests, on which it builds itself in anticipating the glory to be revealed. He who is coming and for whom we look is the Son of God, the risen Christ, the deliverer from the wrath to come. Okay, and that has that theme in there, doesn't it, right away of the living in this in-between time from we turned away from these idols, we turned away from those things, didn't we? And we've now, we are now waiting for the blessed expectation and the coming of Jesus Christ um, to this earth who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, thank you for listening. I hope this has been encouraging to you um, for Colossians. And we've wrapped up Colossians. We're in 1 Thessalonians. We will still be in 1 Thessalonians uh, next week. Uh, Week 38 is next week. And we will continue uh, reading through the New Testament. Thank you so much for listening to this. And take care. And God bless.